As you know, all of the messages this past month have been based on specific requests made by some of you. And we've been able to get to most of those requests. And the ones we didn't, perhaps we'll address those in the future. But I want to thank all of you who helped out this month by making your requests for this message series. You asked for it. We're going to finish up this series with a very challenging question. Because I was asked to compare Christianity with other religions, such as Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. And that was a great question, but it was also a very broad question, and if the truth were known, the reason we're doing this the last week of the series is because I knew I'd need this long to figure out just how I was going to cover all of it. And my conclusion was, I can't. It would be impossible for us to take just our time here this morning and cover the beliefs of all these different religions while formulating a Christian response to them. There's just not enough time to do that. And so here's what we are going to do. We're going to examine just one of those other religions. We're just going to look at one of them. And perhaps we'll come back and we'll do an entire uh, series or a life group series that examines all of, those, uh, all of the major religions of the world. But for today, we're going to talk about Islam, the religion of the Muslims. And even then, we're not going to be able to get into everything. But we will be able to do a comparison of some of the major issues. So why Islam? Why did I choose to talk about that one? Well, I chose it because that's the one that you are most likely to encounter. Islam is one of the fastest growing religions in the world, and the Muslim population is increasing rapidly even here in Canada. Let me take you back. Let me give you a little bit of history. The first recorded Islamic presence in Canada included 13 Muslims identified in a census done in 1871. By the year 1930, that number had grown to a mere 700. When I was born in 1970, there were about 30,000 people across this country who claimed to be Muslims. In 1981, there were 98,000. And in the 2001 census, there were 580,000 who claimed to be Muslim. Today, there's an estimated 750 Muslims in Canada, making Islam the second largest religion in the country with 2% of the population. Still a long ways behind the 72% who claim to be Christian, but it is the second largest religion in the country and is growing. And while school policies across the country limit any mention of Christianity, it's becoming more and more likely that your children will be taught about Islam as a viable alternative. So the Muslim population is growing rapidly and is gaining influence here in Canada. How about the rest of the world? Well, there are 1.3 billion Muslims in the world, 21% of the population. Some estimates actually place that number even higher, saying that almost one out of every four people in the world is a Muslim. By comparison, Christianity is the largest religion in the world, with 2.1 billion, or 33% of the population. Here on the screen you can see a chart that I found on wikipedia.org and it shows the breakdown of all the major religions of the world. And as you can see, by combining Christianity and Islam, they account for more than half of the Earth's population. Here's another map, and this map shows you what religions are dominant in what parts of the world. All of the countries that are purplish or, or bluish are highly Christian. All of the countries that are shades of green are Islamic. And as you can see, the other religions are represented there as well. But if you want to just see the Christian and the Islamic populations, for the sake of comparison, here's a map that will show you that. On this map, the darker the red, the greater the percentage of Christians in those countries. 
and the darker the green the more Islamic those countries are. And here's one more map. And this map shows you a term that you might be familiar with, the 1040 window. That term, 1040 window, refers to this area right here between 10 degrees and 40 degrees north of the equator, stretching from North Africa all the way to China. And in that window, in that pocket of the world, lies about two-thirds of the world's population. 85% of the people there are among the poorest in the world. Most of them are Buddhist, Hindu, or Islamic. In fact, several of the countries within that window are close to 100% Muslim, and their governments operate under Islamic law. Now, from a Christian perspective, this is also the least evangelized part of the world, with only three missionaries for every million Muslims. It's also the most dangerous area. One Christian is martyred every three minutes in this world, and most of it happens in that window right there. About one and a half billion people in the world have never heard the name of Jesus, and most of them live right in here. But I should point out, there's a difference between being unreached and being unreachable. Let me give you an example. Mongolia. Mongolia is just north of this 1040 window. But in Mongolia, in the year 1989, at the same time that I was in university, there were only four known Christians living in all of Mongolia. Four people were Christian in Mongolia. Today, there are over 10,000. The message of Jesus is powerful and produces incredible results, even in this very closed and dangerous part of the world. It's possible for the message of Jesus to have a dramatic impact. But the question is, should it? Should Christians be actively promoting their religion in a culture that predominantly rejects them? Well, that's certainly not a new question, but it has been a hot topic in the past five years since the terrorist attacks in New York and in Washington, D.C., even Time Magazine got in on the action. Here's a cover from June 30th, 2003, with a question, Should Christians Convert Muslims? The main article in that issue explored the, that question and criticized missionaries who combined what it called religious arrogance with political ignorance. And I actually agree with that criticism. I, I do believe that missionaries carry a critical message that is desperately needed in these areas. But at the same time, they need to exercise some common sense and be respectful of the laws and the cultures they are entering. So, does that mean that they shouldn't go? Well, how about Muslims right here in Charlottetown? Should we tell them about Jesus and what he's done for them? And about his gifts of forgiveness and life? Or should we just lead them to their own beliefs? That would certainly be the more politically correct decision. But would it be the more loving? Well, let me ask you this. If your father was a drug addict and was constantly strung out and if his very life was in danger, would you respect him enough to leave him to his own choices? Or would you try to persuade him and stop him and try to get him some help? Or wouldn't that be meddling? Wouldn't that be pushing your own beliefs on him? What would be the more loving thing to do? Well, I think the loving thing to do would be to try to get him some help. That complete stranger down the street might not lift a finger to do anything. Is that a sign of love? No, that's a sign of indifference. The loving thing to do would be to try to free your father from his bondage. Even if he didn't want your help, you'd have to do your best to convince him, wouldn't you? The stakes are too high not to. Well, the stakes are even higher when it comes to Muslims. 
Because if what we believe to be true is true, and if what they believe to be true is false, then their eternity lies in the balance. What would be the loving thing to do? Respect and love them enough to leave them alone, headed for a godless eternity? Or respect and love them enough to point them toward the truth? Well, there are actually a lot of people who would tell you to butt out. They would say that every religion is equally true, and that you have no right to try to convert anyone. As far as they're concerned, all religions are just different ways to the same God. They would say that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. But are they right? Well, they are correct to say that there are some similarities between Christianity and Islam, but I think they're ignoring the critical differences. But they're right, there are some similarities. So let's start with them. Some similarities between Christianity and Islam. First of all, both believe in only one God. That's called monotheism, belief in one God. And this is affirmed in both the Bible and in the Quran. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God. And in the Quran, in Surah 112, verses 1 through 4, it says, He is God, the one and only, God the eternal, absolute. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. But is that one God of Christianity the same one God of Islam? Is the Father of Jesus the God of Muhammad? Is Yahweh, the name of God in the Old Testament, the same as Allah? Well, we'll come back to that later, but let's look at another similarity. The second similarity is that both are guided by holy books, or at least books that each religion believes are holy. Christians have the Bible. We believe that over the span of the centuries, God himself inspired and led the prophets and the apostles and others who wrote the various books included in the Bible, and that he protected those writings from errors. And we believe that those writings have been transmitted and translated to us today without compromise of any essential doctrine. It's the word of God that tells us how we can be made right with God and how we can know him, how we can receive his gifts of forgiveness and eternal life, and it guides us how to live from day to day. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. Well, you may be surprised to learn that Muslims also value the Bible, although they also consider it to be corrupted. They believe Abraham was a Muslim, they believe Jesus was a Muslim, and they claim many of the prominent people in our Bible as their own. But it would be through Muhammad in the 7th century that they would receive what they consider to be their true scriptures, the Quran. According to Muslim belief, the Quran was given to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel over the course of 23 years. And they consider the Quran to be so divine in the original Arabic that they do not view any translation as being authoritative. It's got to be read in the Arabic in order to be a true revelation. Another similarity is that both have the goal of a divine future. In some religions, life is just like the movie Groundhog Day. You just keep reliving the same experiences over and over and over again. Life just goes in circles and there's reincarnation after reincarnation. But for both Christianity and for Islam, there's the goal of a divine future. Life is heading somewhere. And by the way, that's something we also have in common with Judaism. Another similarity that we have with Islam is that both have the task of conveying their message to the world. Both Christians and Muslims believe that their message is for everyone. However, the methods used to spread the two messages are very different. 
going back to the very beginning, Jesus used persuasion and storytelling and logic and miracles, but he never resorted to violence. Even when he was physically attacked and eventually crucified, he never struck back. Instead, he prayed for their forgiveness, for the very forgiveness of the ones who were, who were nailing him to the cross. The same was true with his followers. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the followers of Christ, prayed for his attackers even as they stoned him to death. Almost all of the disciples were martyred, and they never fought back. Early Christians were routinely persecuted and killed and even fed to wild animals, but they always responded peacefully. The beginnings of Islam are quite different. When Muhammad first started preaching his new religion, he was hoping to gain acceptance by Jews and Christians. But when his message was rejected as being false, he became more and more hostile toward them. His earliest writings were actually quite sympathetic to, toward both Jews and Christians. But if you read through them chronologically, you'll discover that he became more and more hostile towards them. And eventually he formed an army to force the spread of Islam, even wiping out entire communities that rejected him. One community in particular that was highly Jewish, he went in and he overtook them and he captured all the people and then he made the women watch as their husbands were brought in five or six at a time and had them beheaded in front of them. It took an entire day, but that's what he had done. Islam was essentially spread with the sword. It was their holy war or their jihad. You can read about that in any encyclopedia. Right from the get-go, it was not exactly a religion of peace. Now I know that's not politically correct to say, but it's not my job to be political, it's my job to be correct. And yet while the methods are different, both faiths believe that they have an obligation to spread their message. So that is actually a similarity that we have. We both believe we have a message that's for everyone. So on the surface, Christianity and Islam can appear very similar. They can sound like they're the same faith, just with different names. But I can assure you, they are not. And you will never hear a Muslim saying that they are. They know their faith well enough to know that Christianity and Islam are diametrically opposed, as are all religions. And while Islam does affirm some of the teachings of Christianity, it denies the foundational beliefs of Christian Christianity. But there's a growing number of people in our society who are simply uninformed about the differences. One poll of Americans revealed that 44% of them agreed with this statement. The Bible, Koran, and the Book of Mormon are just different expressions of the same spiritual truths. 44% of people agreed with that statement. Many people today know so little about the different faiths that they believe that they're interchangeable. One of my favorite authors and speakers is Ravi Zacharias, and he's an expert when it comes to philosophy of religion. And he has said, People often say that religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different. May I reverse that for you and tell you that religions are fundamentally different and at times superficially similar. But what does it all matter? Even if Christianity and Islam aren't the same, aren't they basically equal? Aren't they all just different ways to God? Well, it's interesting. In my observation, that question is only ever asked about Christianity. And it's not asked about other religions. Other religions are not criticized for being ex exclusive. Only Christianity is. Christianity is the faith that takes the hit for being ex exclusive. But the truth is that every religion in the world has a point of exclusion. 
Even Hinduism, which claims to be inclusive, will not compromise on the doctrines of karma and reincarnation. Those are foundational, and if you won't accept them, then you can't be Hindu. Buddhism was born out of the rejection of some Hindu claims, particularly when it comes to the authority of the Vedas and the caste system. And both Christianity and Islam have some very exclusive claims too. And we're going to talk about some of those differences. And as we do so, I hope we'll be able to take an honest look at Islamic beliefs while remaining respectful of Muslims, because they hold their beliefs as dearly as you and I hold ours. But before we get to those differences, let me just explain that, that this exclusivity is essential. If religion is a search for truth, then truth by its very nature is exclusive. If something is true, then it's only true because something else is false. And so even in denying exclusivity, you'd be excluding those who believe in exclusion. It just doesn't make sense to argue against this exclusivity between religions. In the field of logic, this would be called the law of non-contradiction. This means that two contradictory statements cannot both be true in the same sense. One scholar has said that even those who deny unique and exclusive approaches to truth would insist that their own approach is unique and exclusive. Otherwise, they would have nothing to say. Truth, by definition, is therefore exclusive and narrow. It has to exclude errors in order to qualify to be truth. So, as we examine just a few of the differences between Christianity and Islam, then these are your choices. First of all, either Christianity is true and Islam is false, or Islam is true and Christianity is false, or both Christianity and Islam are false. Those are your choices, but they cannot both be true because they're contradictory. So what are some of these major differences? Well, there are several. And at the end of our time here this morning, I'm going to give you a sheet that summarizes many of them. It's a sheet from the North American Mission Board, uh, which is a Baptist organization that has compiled some of the differences uh, in our beliefs. But what I want to do here for the rest of our time is I want to summarize just three of the major areas of difference. And I'll talk about a couple of, of details in each area. So let's talk about these major differences. First of all, the first major area is when it comes to the nature and identity of God. The nature and identity of God. Christians believe in, in the Trinity, the doctrine that there is one God who exists as three persons. This is the understanding that God exists as three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons who all share the, the same divine essence or being or nature. This can be seen in passages like John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 18, where it says, In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word refers to Jesus. In the beginning, the Word already existed. He was with God, and He was God. No one has ever seen God, but His only Son, who is Himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has told us about Him. And then in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, you see all three persons of the Godhead, all three persons of the Trinity, identified in the same sentence. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Basically, this doctrine of the Trinity says that the Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, 
but there's only one God. And in your notes you can see that it's been summed up in what's known as the shield of the Trinity. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but they are not each other. There's three distinct, co-eternal, co-equal persons who exist as God, just the one God. So while Christians believe in the Trinity, Muslims refute the Trinity as a belief in three gods. Their foundational creed states that there is no God but Allah. And so to them, this Christian concept of God as Trinity is polytheistic, or belief in many gods, and they consider it to be profane. So we differ there. Uh, another part of this uh, this difference when it comes to the nature of God is that Christians believe that God has revealed himself and is knowable. We believe we can know God. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, So the Word, referring to Jesus again, the Word became human and lived here on earth among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. So we believe God has revealed himself and is knowable. Muslims, on the other hand, believe God is hidden and is unknowable. In Islam, there's no concept of having a personal relationship with Allah. There's no image of Allah interacting with creation. There's no perception of a loving, caring God. Allah is presented instead as almost an angry God of justice with a strict list of warnings which must be obeyed or suffer the consequences. Yes, the Christian God is also a God of justice. But that justice is tempered with love and compassion and mercy and holiness and grace. So our understanding of who God is, is different. It's contradictory. The second major area of difference between Christians and, and Muslims is when it comes to the nature of Jesus and what he did. For the Christian, Jesus is understood to be divine. We've already talked about how Christians view Jesus as being one of the persons of the Trinity, and therefore God. In the passage that we read earlier in our worship celebration, Jesus claims to be the one and only way to God the Father. He himself is the truth. He is the source of life. On the other hand, Muslims see Jesus as just a prophet. Nothing more, nothing less. Oh, they do claim to respect Jesus and highly esteem him in the Islamic faith. He's even talked about in the Quran. But do you understand what a demotion it is for Jesus to be taken from being God to being considered just a good prophet? That's a major difference. Also, the Christian hope is founded on the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul expressed that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he wrote, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still under condemnation for your sins. But the fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead. So to the Christian, the death and resurrection of Jesus are critical. Without them, Christianity doesn't exist. Christianity is pointless without the crucifixion and the resurrection. But to the Muslim, the crucifixion and resurrection never occurred. To the Muslim, Jesus was not divine. He did not die on the cross. His death was not a sacrifice for sin. And since he was not crucified, there was also no res resurrection. That right there is the very essence of the Christian message. And so by denying who Jesus was and what he did, they completely discount the Christ of Christianity, and they reject the heart of our faith. Timothy George has done some extensive study 
in this area of the differences between Islam and Christianity. And he has said, there can be no Christianity without the cross. There can be no Islam with the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus, the cross of Christ, is the great dividing point between these two vast world religions. Plus, let me add that while Muslims do recognize Jesus as being a great prophet, their greatest prophet was Muhammad. In fact, their full profession of faith states, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. They claim to follow Allah, but Muhammad is their example. Here's something that you might find interesting. One great Muslim writer from the Middle Ages wrote this. He wrote, When cutting your nails, you must begin with a little toe of the right foot and finish with a little toe of the left foot. Wow, that's pretty specific, isn't it? I mean, Shara would be happy if I just cut my toenails. She doesn't care how, just do it. Any old way will do. Why would a Muslim want to get this specific about cutting toenails? Because that's how Muhammad supposedly cut his. That's the level of reverence the Muslim has for Muhammad, much more than they have for Jesus. So we differ greatly when it comes to the nature of Jesus and what he did. And the third great area of difference is when it comes to the current condition and future hope of humanity. Christians believe that sin entered the human race through Adam. And that sin has been passed down through the generations and has corrupted all of creation. And so we are all in desperate need of a Savior. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So we believe that sin entered the human race through Adam. Muslims, on the other hand, reject this concept of original sin. They do believe that Adam sinned, yes, but they also believe that he was restored and that there were no permanent consequences of his sin. And since there's, there's no original sin, there's also no need for a savior. Well, Christians also have the assurance of a future with God. Jesus told us that we can know our future is secure. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul wrote, The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us everything he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. So we have some assurance of a future with God. Muslims, on the other hand, never really know if their future is secure. Actually, that's not entirely true. There is one guarantee, according to Islamic belief, that they can guarantee their future. If a Muslim is killed in a jihad or in a holy war, then they are assured of heaven which, as you can understand, just feeds the Islamic terrorist mindset. But other than that, the Muslim cannot really know if their future is secure. And also, for the Christian, salvation is based on God's grace. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace that cannot be bought or earned. It's a gift, and it's available to all who will receive it. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 say God saved you by his special favor, that's grace, he saved you by his special favor when you believed. And you can't take credit for this, it's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. So we believe that salvation is based solely on God's grace. For the Muslim though, salvation is determined by their good works. For them, Allah decides if they've been good enough to gain entrance into heaven, and it's based on what they've done. 
how well they've kept the five pillars of Islam to be specific, which you can read up on on your own. So as you can see, there are some critical differences between Islam and Christianity. The two faiths cannot be merged. Either Christianity is true and Islam is false, or Islam is true and Christianity is false, or both Christianity and Islam are false, but they cannot both be true. As Bill Hybels explains, the law of non-contradiction says that positions that are different from one another cannot be equally true. You've got to figure out what you believe and where you're going to drive that stake in the ground and say, on the evidence, on the search that I've done, this is what I believe. This is what I'll stake my life and my eternity on. So where do you stake your life? Have you really explored your faith or are you just paying lip service to it? Do you know what you believe so that you can recognize what is true and what is false? Where do you stake your eternity? As we finish up here this morning, I want to show you a video. And in this video, you'll see how Muslims understand that Islam and Christianity are in no way the same faith. You'll see how fiercely they oppose Christianity. And you'll also see how Jesus can transform a life and a community and the world. rejected, and ultimately banished from Islamic school by his Quranic teachers. The Imam issued a decree that he was not to be spoken to, even by his own family. Abdul's only sin was that he was asking too many questions in his search to know more about God. Lost and alone, he contemplated suicide as he walked a South Asian road. Despite thoughts of ending his life, that day's journey marked an exciting new beginning. It was a hot May day. I was coming home about noontime. The temperature was about 100 degrees and we had 84% humidity. I looked ahead and I saw a young man going to what I assumed was to the bus station through which I would be passing going to our home. So I told my rickshaw puller Let's stop and pick up that young man ahead of us. When I was on the rickshaw and I was talking with him, and he, he, he talked with me so nicely, and he was so, you know, he said, so good. And I had a feeling, how? Oh, I, I, I'm a condemned man. Nobody wants to talk with me. And this man, he, why he's so good to me? I was really doubt about him. He, is he a man or angel? So when I was sitting on the rickshaw, and now and then I was touching his hand to be sure he's a man. By day's end, Tom and Abdul had struck up a friendship. At a later encounter, Tom gave Abdul a Bible. Several nights of intense study of God's word led to Abdul crying out to God for salvation through Jesus Christ. After Abdul became a Christian, he told his family about this and of course like all the neighbors his father and brothers were very upset he was put out of his home his father joined in with the community and beat him and this caused Abdul to leave home after many years away from home Abdul heard God calling him back to the village of his youth 
Once home, he encountered a childhood friend. His banishment from home still firmly in place, Abdul went to stay with this friend. And I had my Quran and my Bible with me, and every night I share with him. Every night. Within three months, he has a big sense, and he is ready to receive Christ, I mean, to take baptism. And then his parents understood that. They were very upset with me. In afternoon, they forced me and they took me to their, to their field, you know, when they're, they're, they're playing the soccer ball. They took me there and they tied my hand inside. And they were asking me question about Jesus. And somebody started to kick me with their boot. And uh, somebody was boxing me. And everyone, they spit on me. They spit on my head, my face, my, my whole body was covered by speed. When Jesus was crucified there and said, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. I had the same vision because they do not know what they are doing. And I was praying for them, I said, please God, help them to understand, please God, accept them and forgive them. That was my prayer. Left for dead, Abdul's friend, his new convert, came to his aid and released him from his bonds. He then begged Abdul, despite the torture he had just witnessed, to be baptized. Next morning, it's about nine o'clock, it was like an open place, I took him there and I baptized him. And after his baptism, he says, God, thanks, thanks God, thank you. Yesterday afternoon, I was beaten up in this village and I was only one. I was only one Christian in this village. But today, we are two. Tomorrow, we can be 200. Day after tomorrow, we can be 2,000, God, if you, if you want. Yes. I think God listened. He had listened to my prayer that day. In that village, we have 1,600 believers, and all of them, they spit on me, and all of them is believer today. Through Abdul and through the movement, the people that he's led to the Lord, I understand there are 280,000 converts who have been baptized. There are, I think, over 3,000 places where the gospel is being preached on a regular basis. The Bible is being read. And one day God's going to sweep across that land with the message of his love and all the peoples will rise up to praise the name of our God. And it all started with that rich override back a long time before that. And I was reminded of that phrase in the hymn, by deeds of loving kindness, the heavenly kingdom comes. Simple gestures led to miraculous results. Two country boys, one from Mississippi, one from South Asia, met on an earthly path and embarked on a heavenly journey. Okay, so in that video clip, you can see that Muslims in no way consider Christianity 
and Islam to be the same religion. They understand that they are diametrically opposed. And they will never mistake that. They will never confuse that. And nor should you. You need to recognize that your faith is unique. That it's exclusive. Any claims of truth are. And if what we believe to be true is true. And if what they believe to be false is false. Then you and I have a responsibility to look for ways to share with them what the truth is. Now we need to do that in a respectful, compassionate way. But we need to do it. So as you encounter people day to day, even here in Charlottetown, who are Muslim, or as far as that goes, just do not share your Christian faith, then you need to look at them as Jesus looks at them. As people that he loves, as people that he died for, but as people who need a savior. Look for opportunities to share your faith with them and begin by praying for them.